As you return to your seats, I want to invite you to take your Bibles and open to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, which in the red Bibles that we make available is on page 862. 862. Now, throughout the sermon, uh, we'll work through reading uh, the whole of the text. Our text this morning is 6, verse 12 through verse 49. Uh, But for the public reading of God's Word prior to the sermon, I simply want to read verse 12 through verse 38, and then again, we'll read verse 39 through 49 in the sermon as well. So if you're able, one more time, I want to invite you to stand so that we might honor the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant Word. Luke 6, 12, and we'll read through verse 38. In these days, He went out to the mountain to pray. And all night he continued in prayer to God. When day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor." And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, "'Blessed are you who are poor.'" For yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich. For you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all peoples speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. As you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies. Do good to those and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. 
good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over will be poured, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Would you remain standing as we pray? Father, as we now consider once more uh, your word, and specifically this morning, how it is that Jesus teaches us to live in this world. Father, would you convict us where we need convicting? Would you comfort us where we need comforting? Would you do all that you desire to do for our good to make us more like your son so that we might shine as lights in this world of darkness, glorifying our Father who is in heaven? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In 1976, Francis Schaeffer wrote a book where he analyzed the development of Western civilization and explored ways that believers should live in light of where we are today. That book was aptly titled, How Should We Then Live? I think that title, How Should We Then Live, is a fitting heading for what we're looking at today in Luke 6, 12 through 49. Now, you'll know if you've been with us throughout these first six chapters, Luke has introduced us to who Jesus is and what He has done. He's shown us to this point how He called His disciples to Himself and how He confronted the world, specifically the scribes and Pharisees. Well, the main thing He does in this section of text, verses 12 through 49 of this chapter 6, is he compiles Jesus' teaching and puts it together in such a way that he teaches us how it is that we as believers should live in this world. And one thing that you'll notice as you read through these verses is that Jesus tells us to live in ways that are not natural to us. The way that we would naturally analyze the world and think about how we should live, Jesus teaches us to, to live in a different way. The way that we might naturally approach others and treat others, Jesus again teaches us to, to think and live contrary to that. Even the way that we often think about ourselves, often being poor judges of ourselves or even ignoring things in our lives that do not need to be ignored, Jesus calls us in a way again to live contrary to that. And it seems that uh, the main message that you get when you read all of this compilation of Jesus' teaching is that we as followers of Jesus Christ should be distinct. We should stand out. It should be obvious to others that we are living in a way that is, again, contrary to the natural world order. Now, the way that Luke sets up this teaching is he uses verses 12 through 16 just to give us a, a summary of Jesus calling uh, his apostles to himself. You remember, he called many disciples, he calls many followers, those who would take up and follow him, who would learn from him and hear his teaching and their lives changed by it. But he called specifically among his broader group of disciples, 12 uh, apostles, individuals uh, whom at one point as he gave the Spirit, he would lead and guide them into all truth. 
bringing to their remembrance things that He had said to them. And, and these men, whether they, they wrote these words themselves or were influential in aiding others in writing, were able to take uh, the infallible Word of God that they, He had worked through them and in their lives to write down this book so that we have through their hands the New Testament, the authoritative, infallible Word of God that we can read and know is true in everything that we do. What Luke does then is he says there's a one occasion then where Jesus takes His apostles and the broader group of His followers, the disciples, and multitudes who are just coming to hear Him. And on this occasion, He stood among them, sat down, and began to teach them. And what He then teaches them after healing and doing this work is what we find then in our text this morning. And so, what I want to do is I want to take Jesus' teaching, because as you can tell, even if you start at verse 20 after the setting, and you start Jesus' teaching at verse 20, and you work all the way to verse 49, that's a good section of text. There's all kinds of things that Jesus is saying in there. So, what I want to do is I want to just group Jesus' teaching as best I can. Uh, perhaps there are ways you could group these better, but I'm going to group them under three headings that I hope will for us be memorable guides to how Jesus teaches us to live in this world. Three things I want to mention this morning. The first one is this. Jesus calls us to live with eternity in mind. Jesus calls us to live with eternity in mind. Now, what He does, beginning in verse 20 is he notes a series of blessings. Individuals would be a better way to say it, and then a series of individuals who are blessed. And those individuals who are blessed are not the individuals that we would think. If you and I were to say, uh, let's think of the kind of people who are blessed in this world, we would say those who are wise, those who are noble, those who are wealthy. But you note that when you look at verses 20 through 23, this seems to be, again, contrary to the way that we would naturally think. Jesus says in verse 20, He lifted up His eyes on His disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 21, Blessed are you who are hungry, now for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. And then He even goes on in verses 22 and 23 to say, Blessed are you when people hate you and revile you and spurn you, persecute you for My namesake. For great is your reward in heaven, and so they did to the fathers. Now, what do we do with this group, then, of individuals, of the people, those who are poor, those who are hungry, uh, those who weep? Why is it that Jesus is identifying them as especially blessed? Well, I think there's a clue for us, specifically if you look at verse 21 and the presence of the word now. So, look at verse 21, blessed are you who are hungry now. And the second half of verse 21, blessed are you who weep now. Now, why is he saying that? Why, why, why put a time stamp on it? Blessed are you who are hungry now. Blessed are you who weep now. Well, it's because he's contrasting what we are experiencing now in this present age with a future reality. And you can see that because, again, just take 21 as an example. Notice how the tense shifts to the future. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall, in the future, be satisfied. Or blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. 
Even in verses 22 and 23, well, going back to verse 20, blessed are you who are poor. We could add there now, obviously. For yours is the kingdom of God, that which will come in its fullness in the future when Christ returns. And then in verses 22 and 23, blessed are you when men hate you and exclude you and revile you and spurn you on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day now and leap for joy. Why? Because your future, your reward in heaven will be great. What Jesus is saying is, for my disciples, they need to evaluate their lives and what they do, how we speak, how we think, how we act. We need to live our lives in light of eternity. Keep eternity in mind, because these things do not look blessed. Now, now let's, let's evaluate that just for a second. Why is Jesus saying that the poor are blessed? Well, I don't think he means that poverty in and of itself is an inherent good, so that if you and I were wise people, we would, you know, pursue poverty like there's no tomorrow, right? I don't think that's what he's saying. Nor is he saying that everyone who is poor is going to inherit the kingdom of God. There are going to be a number of poor people who do not bow the knee to Jesus Christ. But I think what he's saying is, generally speaking, those who are poor are individuals who know they have need. And those who know they have need are apt to look to the one who can supply that need in Jesus Christ. The same is true with those who are hungry or those who weep. Uh, we were saying in our small group the other night when we were talking about having last week looked at Psalm 3 as a psalm of lament. And, and one of the things that we were saying is it's often when we go through difficult moments and we find ourselves lamenting that, that, we, that we cry out to God in a way that we do not always find ourselves crying out to God when things are going well. And the reason for that is because it is in our moments of weeping, in our moments of mourning, when we know our emptiness, when we know our, our inability, uh, we do not have the power to make all right in the world, though we wish we could. And so we find ourselves then desperate and looking to God. This is what Jesus is saying. People who understand that, people who understand that they need God and therefore turn to Him, looking to Christ. Those people will be blessed in eternity. But, but it doesn't only say that. He notes, one, that these people as well, they'll receive great reward for, for this is how the prophets were treated and lived as well, uh, even being persecuted. But notice in verses 24 through 26 that Jesus notes an opposite to this as well. If, if verses 20 through 23 are a series of blessings... Uh, then verses 24 through 26 are a series of woes. Now, now, woe is not a word that we often use now. A few of us, if any, find ourselves saying, woe is me, like Isaiah said in Isaiah 6, when he saw the Lord high and exalted and the cherubim crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. You remember Isaiah said, woe is me. For I'm undone, for my eyes have seen the King of glory, right? I'm a, a man my, my, of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, right? When Isaiah says, woe is me, what he means is, I am under the judgment of God. I don't measure up. I'm not worthy. I'm a fitting object of God's judgment. Uh, woe is a pronouncement of judgment. And so Jesus is saying, as opposed to those who are blessed... Those who are received in the kingdom, there's also harsh judgment. So then he can say in verse 24, Woe to those who are rich, for you've received your consolation. And then notice again, it's the same reality. He's talking about this age versus eternity. 
Verse 25, woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their, so, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Uh, what Jesus is saying here is that those individuals who do not think they have need for Christ now, but who have all that the world offers, will find themselves on the final day in eternity being hungry, mourning, weeping, and finding that they are in the same position as the false prophets. Now, the basic way then this sets up, and this is how Jesus is setting up for us as His followers, is the reality that we see elsewhere in the text. In fact, John made reference to it in his prayer earlier. You and I can live our lives seeking this world and all it can give us. Pursue this world's lusts. Pursue this world's approval. Pursue this world's praise. And you can go that route, and there is something that it will give you. It will give you fleeting pleasures now. It will perhaps give you everyone speaking well of you now. It will give you, perhaps, even a lack of any kind of persecution. But, Jesus says, if you do that, you need to keep eternity in mind. Because though you avoid the world's persecution on the day of judgment, you will face the wrath of the Lamb of God. Or, you can say, I will not pursue this world. I will not pursue what this world tells me I need to chase after. I will not pursue this world's lust, this world's greed, this world's pride. I will bow the knee to Jesus Christ, understanding that that will put me in a place and make me the object of disdain in this world, perhaps even the object of persecution. And I may well then inviting into my, be inviting into my life suffering and affliction, but on the day of judgment, instead of getting the wrath of the Lamb, He will be the very one saying to you, come into my kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the world. And so this is what we need to understand. We do not live our lives as followers of Christ thinking about this world only, thinking about this age only. If you do, you will simply chase after what this world can give you. But as followers of Christ, we live with eternity in mind. Everything we do with our money, with what we watch, with how we think about sacrifice, we do knowing that this life is but a mist, something that is here in one moment and gone in the next. But eternity is forever. And so the first thing then Jesus calls us to do as His followers is He says, I want you to live with eternity in mind. Second, Jesus calls us to love our enemies Jesus calls us to love our enemies. So if you made it in through the first category and you think to yourself, oh, that's kind of challenging, but all right, I'm there. Well, Jesus says there's more to come. And specifically in the second section, verses 27 through 38, Jesus calls us to love our enemies. He says in verses 27 and verse 28, but I say to you who hear, 
love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Now, again, this is one of those teachings of Christ that in which he's telling us, I want you to do contrary to what is natural, just as what is natural is to look and think of this life only instead of eternity, and calls us to do contrary to that. So the response that we make toward our enemies is often that the natural thought is you match their hatred with your hatred. You match their abuse with your abuse. You, you, you match their cutting remarks with your cutting remarks. And that is not at all the way that Jesus tells us to respond. Rather, he says to those who uh, hate you and, 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 and uh, persecute you and abuse you, I want you to love them, to do good to them, to bless them, to pray for them. And it seems that Jesus even has in mind a context here of facing persecution. In other words, if we would say, Jesus... Uh, this sounds like a really great call, love my enemies, but in this case, our enemies are actually persecuting us. Uh, they're seeking our harm. It seems that Jesus says, yeah, that, that's the very context I'm talking about. Because look at verse 29. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your, your tunic either. It's not as if Jesus is saying, I'm merely telling you to love your enemies when, when they're against you, but they're not really doing anything. He says, no, no, I'm talking about people who come and strike you on the cheek. People who come and, and, and try to take your stuff from you. I, I'm talking about individuals like that, those who are real enemies. He's, he's talking clearly about the category of persecution. Now, now, we might say verse 30 doesn't sound like persecution. Give to everyone who begs from you and from one who takes away your goods. Do not demand them back. I mean, taking away your goods, yes, but the one who begs of you. I mean, the guy that's standing on the street corner is not necessarily your enemy. Well, it may be that that's what Jesus is saying, but, but the word beg here is used other places in Luke's gospel where it can also be translated as demands. So, it may be that, that what Jesus is saying here is to the one who, who demands from you and who demands your goods. Uh, this is the way uh, John Calvin, for example, took it in his commentary. He, he writes, uh, it should be inferred in this context that Luke does not speak here of an individual requesting to obtain assistance, but bad men seeking to carry off the property of others. And not only then, I think, do we see this as a context of persecution because right before this section… In verse 27, Jesus has talked about in the first 6, 20 through 26, He's talked about being the object of persecution. But right after this, look at verse 32. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. So, so it seems that Jesus is saying, I've talked about you being persecuted and that you're going to be blessed. Right after this, I'm going to talk about those who, who do not love you but who are against you. And so it seems that right in the middle here, in verses 27 through 31, Jesus is talking to us about how to respond to our enemies, even those who abuse us. And again, what He tells us to do is something that is utterly unnatural. Do not match hate for hate or curse for curse or abuse for abuse. What then should we do? Because we right now could say that we have all kinds of enemies. There are people who think we're crazy. There are people who this morning if they knew that we gathered as a church and gave thanks to God for the overturning of Roe versus Wade and the saving of babies' lives, 
would detest us so much that they would seek our end. How do we respond to those people? And here's Jesus' answer, as crazy as it sounds, love them. Do good to them. Bless them. Pray for them. Treat them the way that you wish they treated you. Now, oftentimes, we take that golden rule, and we rarely apply it in the context of our enemies, don't we? As parents, we have, in context, we have applied it in the context of like one child toward another, right? Quit taking his toy. Treat him the way you wish he treated you. Amen. But I think it carries a bit more weight when we think of it in the context of having enemies who even are attempting to persecute us, doesn't it? Jesus is saying, treat them the way you want them to treat you. Now, that may well put us in a place where we receive abuse without retaliating with abuse or hatred without retaliating with hatred. And yet, isn't this Jesus' point? I want you to live in a way that's distinct. Now, now here I don't mean that we should press everything that Jesus is telling us to do in a literal way because I do think he's, he's, he's being a bit exaggerated. You remember uh, when Jesus was saying in the Sermon on the Mount, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Was well, a reason why I don't know of anyone in this congregation who's plucked off their eye and cut off their hands. Though I'm certain all of us would say our eyes have caused us to sin and our hands have caused us to sin as well. But, but we understand that Jesus is using this exaggerated picture of plucking out your eye and cutting off your hand because what He's saying is, I want you to go to radical measures to stop sinning and to walk in holiness. Well, so it is here when Jesus says, uh, to the one who takes your goods, do not demand them back. And, and to the one who asks of you or demands of you, give him what you have. I don't think that Jesus means literally that once people start saying, I want your clothes, you empty out your closet and stand naked in front of them. Or that we all give away our houses so that we would ultimately end up again naked and homeless and hungry, wandering around. But what Jesus is saying is we must take radical measures to make the world understand our response to them isn't matching their vitriol for us. When they hate us, we do them good. When they speak evil of us, we pray that God would bless them by turning their hearts. Again, this is Jesus' point in verses 32 through 35. If you just say, well, I'll simply do good to those who love me, well, sinners do the same thing. But Jesus says in verse 35, love your enemies, do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return. Your reward will be great, and you'll be sons of the Most High, for He, the Most High, God, our God, is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. But He doesn't stop there. He also tells us in verse 37 and 38 that we should stand ready to forgive and show mercy. He says in verse 37, judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you'll be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Now, oftentimes we hear this text quoted, judge not and you will not be judged in an out-of-context way simply to suggest that as believers we shouldn't judge in any context. We know better, don't we? 1 Corinthians 5, 
Paul actually commands us to judge in the church. If someone is a professing believer walking in unrepentant sin, Paul says, judge them. Now, judgment's even required if we're going to share the gospel. We have to tell individuals who do not know Christ that you are a sinner under the wrath of God. That's making a judgment about them and sharing the bad news so that they might understand the good news that God sent His Son to live and die and be raised so that we might repent, believe, and be reconciled to Him, forgiven of our sins. So clearly the idea is not, there's no context in which we ever pass judgment. But what Jesus is saying, it seems is, we do not ever put ourselves in a place of judging someone as being unworthy of mercy, as being unworthy of forgiveness. If our stance is, I'm judging and condemning, and that person does not deserve forgiveness and mercy, and I will not give it to them, then Jesus says, then I want you to know this, by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. In other words, yes. If you say, I simply will not forgive, is there an alternative? Yes. It's hell. But for the believer, there is no alternative. We stand ready as we see confession, as we see repentance, we stand ready to, to lavish mercy and forgiveness knowing that as we measure that out to them, our Father is measuring out to us in return. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. He is pouring into our laps. You see, this world is full of people who love those who love them. Just get on Twitter and say something, and some people who agree with you will praise you to no end. They don't even have to like you in real life. Others who don't like what you're saying will hate you to no end, even if they like you in real life. But Jesus' point is, if you just love those who love you, there's not going to be any standing out, any distinction in this world. What I'm calling you to do is love your enemies. And no doubt you and I know of testimonies of individuals who say, when I opposed believers, some of them began to love me and do good to me and bless me and pray for me, and the Lord used it to change my heart. That's Rosario Butterfield's testimony. I don't know for how many of you know her. She was, a, uh, I think, an English, uh, you know, women's lit or something professor uh, living an active homosexual lifestyle, opposing the church when a pastor and his wife approached her, invited her into their home to talk with her, yeah, debate with her, but they did it in a loving way, showing her kindness and goodness, inviting her to their table so that eventually she repented of her sins, found forgiveness in Christ, and is now a believer. This is how Jesus calls us to live. But there's one more category that we should note, and it's number three. Jesus calls us to be self-discerning. Jesus calls us to be self-discerning. He begins in verses 40, uh, 39, uh, through 42, he gives us a parable. Luke writes, he told them a parable, can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he's fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why then do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? 
How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck that is in your brother's eye. This parable, this idea of the blind leading the blind, Jesus' point is, again, we get it, just literally speaking, right? If one blind man tries to lead another blind man around, it's not going to help him any. He's, they're, they're both blind, right? They're perhaps going to fall into a pit. Jesus' point is, it must be the same with regards to us. If we put ourselves in a place of telling others, you need to obey Jesus Christ, but we ourselves are not living a life of obedience to Jesus Christ, that we're no better than one blind man leading another blind man around. Jesus says, a disciple is going to become like his teacher. So it's not enough for you and I to say to others, do this, do this, and do this, because that's what Jesus says when we ourselves are not doing those things. It is more likely that those whom we are, quote-unquote, discipling will catch how we're living instead of what we're saying. And they will mimic our lives. This is why the power of example, the power of living it out is so powerful. And this is then Jesus' point, so that if you look and see your brother and say, he's got a speck in his eye, I can move it out. I can be his teacher. I can help him. Jesus says, first, examine yourself. Be a bit self-discerning and see, do you have a log in your eye? If so, first address that, remove, remove the, the impediment to holiness in your own life. Walk in holiness so that then you'll be able to instruct your brother in holiness as well. You see how he, he begins this last section with this note of examining yourself. Well, he continues it in verses 43 through 45. Because we might say something like this, oh, you, you got me, Jesus. I have not been living in obedience to Christ. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm pursuing these things, pursuing those things that you forbid. I'm not a very good disciple maker. I'm not a very good teacher. You got me. I guess I'll just be one of those kinds of Christians who comes and sits and just kind of takes it in and, and really isn't an example for others. And Jesus says, mm, not so fast. If you and I aren't walking in obedience to Christ, the issue might be much more severe than that you're not going to be a good example. You're not going to be a good teacher. You're not going to be one whom others should mimic. The problem might be you don't have a new heart. Because listen to what he says in verses 43 through 45. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. This seems to be the kind of thing that, whether it was taught or just intuited by me when I was growing up, and it's quite likely it was the latter, this seemed to be my understanding of the church as I grew up, that there were some believers who were very earnest about following Jesus Christ and very serious, and, and, and those were the impressive believers, like super Christians, if you will. But most Christians, in my mind, I thought, they're Christians who, they're Christians, but they don't really seem to care a ton about making sure they're walking in holiness. 
Yeah, maybe for the radical group, they're pursuing purity and morality. But for the other group, they're, they're kind of content. Yeah, I'm going to walk in sexual morality. It's, you know, it's not going to mean I'm a good role model, but at least I know Christ. But Jesus is saying, maybe you should evaluate yourself a little more. Because if sexual immorality is coming out in your life, you should think of it like a tree. If a tree is bearing bad fruit, it's because the tree's bad. And if that tree is bearing good fruit, it's because the tree is good. We're not going to produce something contrary to our nature. If then you do not have a desire to radically pursue obedience to Jesus Christ, it may not be that you should sit and tell yourself, I'm a Christian who's not a good example. You may need to ask yourself, have I been born again? Because when we are born again, we're given new hearts with the Spirit coming to dwell within us and causing us to walk in the ways of Christ. And this is then why Jesus ends in this last section telling us to build our lives on obeying Jesus. It's not enough to say, He is my Lord without doing what He says. So He says in verses 46 and following, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my word and does them, I'll show you what he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood rose and the stream broke against it, the house could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built his house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell. And the ruin of that house was great. Jesus says, the one who does not pursue obedience to me, it's as if he's building his life on no foundation. And on that final day, when judgment comes, it will not stand. The one, though, who builds his life on obedience, the one who hears God's word and does it, will find himself standing on the day of judgment, not because we're justified by our works, we're justified by faith alone. But again, anyone who is justified by faith alone finds that the Lord changes their lives and it brings within them a desire to obey Christ. So note then how Jesus ends his teaching. After calling us to live in light of eternity and to love our enemies, he also says, and my people need to be self-discerning. We need to take a while and examine our hearts and make sure we're pursuing obedience. There's not three categories. Individuals who do obey Jesus as their Lord. Individuals who do not know Jesus and do not obey Him. And a middle category, those who call Him Lord but do not obey Him as if that's an acceptability. Jesus says, if you're going to call me Lord, you need to obey. And if you don't have a desire to obey and a willingness to walk in obedience, then you might be a bad tree producing bad fruit. So this morning, I just want to call us then to examine ourselves. This is a healthy thing to do. Hebrews warns us we can drift toward falling away. So let me ask you just, just a series of questions. Let me ask us. 
I'll start perhaps with those who may be younger. As you consider dating and as you consider walking in sexual purity, are you pursuing obedience to Jesus Christ? If you're not, it may mean that you do not know Jesus. If you do know Jesus, one thing that He may graciously be doing in this very moment is saying to you, you're mine. I'm not letting you go. Repent. And you'll find mercy. And you'll find forgiveness. But that's not simply for the young, is it? Uh, we are a culture. I know that every vice list in the Bible begins with sexual morality. That's, what, that's why I, I want to mention it constantly. The Bible does. But good grief, we've invented ways to be sexually immoral. We can watch devices we carry around in our pockets and look at things we should not see. Watch things on the screen we shouldn't see. Again, ask ourselves this question. Am I living in a way that shows I'm a good tree bearing good fruit? Or am I calling Jesus Lord, but do not obey what He says? Again, ask this with regard to our speech. It's so easy to sin with our tongues, isn't it? James tells us this. With our tongues, we're like a small flame that can set a forest ablaze. Ask ourselves, are we given to gossip and slander about others? Or do we use our tongues to edify, to speak well, to build up others? Ask this about our money. With our money, are we simply chasing what the world says we should be chasing? Or are we using our money to invest in the kingdom of God, to build up His church and see His great commission fulfilled? With our time, do we build our lives around pursuing with our times the things we want to pursue that the world says we should want to pursue? Or do we orient our lives toward things like gathering with the body of Christ on the Lord's day and spending our lives for the good of others? Are you and I willing to sacrifice to obey Jesus, understanding that there really is no sacrifice if those who are poor will inherit the kingdom of God and those who are hungry will be filled and those who weep will be comforted and laugh. Now, as we examine ourselves, if indeed we find ourselves not walking in obedience to Christ, the answer isn't, now do better. If you go that route, you'll ultimately find you're struggling and you'll give up. Here's the answer. If you realize that indeed you're not walking in obedience to Christ, here's the answer. Confess your sin, repent of your sin, and run to the crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ. The answer is never about us doing enough good to measure up. The answer is running and realizing that Jesus Christ has done enough for us. And we've said many times the gospel doesn't come to us with do. The gospel comes to us and says done. Christ has done this for you. So let us run to Him. Let us confess our sins, repent, knowing that the crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ will lavish on us mercy and grace, that we can find in Him everything we need, and then realizing that, that in Christ we have all we need, even forgiveness of sins, let us then turn as those who know His grace and know His love and know His forgiveness and know there's no condemnation for those who are in Him, and then let us pursue obedience. Now, because they both could end, I'll do better, and pursuing obedience, they sound a lot alike, 
It can feel like they're very similar, but they're drastically different approaches. So this morning, our response to this text, if indeed we've been convicted that we're not walking in obedience to Christ, is to come to the table. And as we eat and as we drink, remember that Christ has done enough for us. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to take a moment of silence this morning. And perhaps in this moment of silence, I'll try to give you a little more time than normal. Maybe it would be good just to ask our Father, would you help me see ways perhaps where I'm not living in light of eternity because I want to do that? Show me ways that I'm not loving my enemies because I want to do that. I want to stand out as salt and light in this world. Show me ways where, where I need to, as I look at my own heart and be a bit self-discerning, show me ways where my life doesn't match up as an obedient disciple and follower of Jesus Christ. And may today then be remembered by us as a glorious day because the Lord graciously called some of us away from some sin to repent and know mercy and grace so that we might walk in obedience. As we come to the table this morning, we'll drink from the cup, we'll eat of the bread, and as we do that, we'll remember the crucified and risen Lord. The way we're going to come is if you are a believer in good standing with the gospel preaching church, we invite you to the table this morning. If you're not a believer this morning, I want to ask instead of coming to the table that you would place your faith in Jesus Christ for the salvation of your sins salvation from your sins. If, if you want to talk to me or somebody near you after the service, we would love to talk to you, but I want to plead with you to place your faith in Christ. If you are a believer in good standing with the gospel preaching church, as I said, that we're going to come to the table just row by row, exit to the outside, come around, take one stack of two cups, the juice will be on top, the bread on the bottom, take one stack of two cups, return to your seat to the inside, the second row will follow, third, and so on and so forth. And then once we all have the bread and have the cup, we'll eat and drink together. And it will be our way of rejoicing together that because of Christ we have forgiveness of Him and because He has poured His Spirit into our heart, we can now walk in obedience. As we come to the table, we'll be singing, Jesus, I, my cross have taken. Because what John said earlier is right. When Christ calls a man, He bids him come and die. And we are coming and laying down our lives so that we might find them in the end. So let's take a moment of silence now as we prepare to come to the table this morning.